You're listening to Once Upon a Podcast, a show all about the rediscovery of children's literature. Join hosts Sarah and Chandler as they delight in childhood classics and discover new favorites. Hey, Sarah. Hey, Chandler. How's it going? It's good to be back. I'm good. How are you? Doing great. Yeah, very glad to be back, too. Been on a bit of a uh, hiatus. Right, which is, I feel like it wasn't intentional, but I'm glad that we had kind of a summer vacation because <laughs> we were busy. I got married. You were doing a lot and moving and doing work stuff. And yeah, you got married. Ah, I did. I know. It's great. It's oh highly gosh. recommend. <laughs> I love it. That's amazing. Well, um, yeah. we've probably lost our two listeners, so that's okay. We'll, we'll restart. Oh, we got a new one. I want to give her a shout out. Oh, um, one of my one of my mom's students is writing her thesis on children's literature, so she's been listening to our podcast and telling my mom that we need to record more. So, oh. here we are. <laughs> okay, well then, we shall uh, get cracking, as they say. Yeah, what book are we doing today, Sarah? <gasps> one of my favorites. Okay, I shouldn't use that phrase because I just have too many of them. But this, <laughs> after rereading this book for this podcast, this it has just rocketed up in my. I already loved this book, but it has just um, increased significantly in, in my opinion of it. Um, it's the Mysterious Benedict Society by Trenton Lee Stewart. Yeah, and it's a great one. It was definitely one of my favorites when I read it in middle school or high school. And I think like all the books we've talked about, it's. You you see so much more in it when you go back and read it as an adult because there's just there's a lot going on that's very clever. Oh, I absolutely saw so much more. And yeah, I saw so much more, and it was really really wonderful. Well, yeah. Okay, we'll have to get more into that. <laughs> let's let's do a little bit of history here. Who about uh, the, our author? Yeah. So when Trenton Lee Stewart was a child, he learned to read as his mom read him Spider-Man comics until he was able to read them himself, which struck me that it might help explain Kate, who's one of the main characters of Stewart's charming and quirky Mysterious Benedict Society series. Stewart was born on May 27th, 1970 and grew up in Hot Springs, Arkansas. His father owns a restaurant supply store and is also a pastor and his mother is a retired teacher. Stewart was in third grade when he discovered his love of writing, especially comical stories and poems. He graduated from Hendricks College in 1992 with a degree in English and went on to earn his MFA in creative writing from the University of Iowa three years later. Stewart continued to write over the next 10 years while working a series of odd jobs until he became a visiting professor at the Miami University of Ohio. Oh, hey, hey. I know where that is. Ohio. Yeah, look at You're that. From there. I am. Some of my closest friends actually went to Miami University. Great school. Oh, uh, wow. Yeah. Flood Summer, Stewart's first novel, was published in 2005. Two years later, today's book, The Mysterious Benedict Society, was published. It remained on the New York Times bestseller list for over a year. The Mysterious Benedict Society and the Perilous Journey followed in 2008, and The Mysterious Benedict Society and the Prisoner's Dilemma in 2009, and were also well-received. A prequel titled The Extraordinary Education of Nicholas Benedict came out in 2012 with the Mysterious Benedict Society and the Riddle of Ages uh, that was most recently released in September. Stewart also wrote The Secret Keepers, which is a standalone young adult novel. Stewart, who is now a full-time writer, has two children and currently resides in Little Rock, Arkansas. 
in an interview, he told the story of the first thing he ever published. Quote, it was a story I wrote in college about a man who falls overboard unnoticed in the middle of the ocean. He is certain to die, and the story deals with his final hours. I sold it for $5 to a tiny amateur literary journal, now long since extinct. Some years later, flipping through an anthology of horror stories, I came across a story that was almost identical to the one I had written. Though I was stunned by how similar the two stories were, there could be no question of plagiarism because the anthologized story had been written almost a century before and by none other than a young Winston Churchill. Isn't that amazing? That is hysterical. Oh, my gosh. I love just the thought of, like, yeah, yeah, of course. I love the thought of, like, reading it and maybe there's something thinking. Like, he probably knew that it was at least 100 years old. But reading it thinking, did this guy plagiarize for me? Only to find out that you definitely accidentally plagiarized Winston Churchill. Yeah, whoops. (laughs) (laughs) Tables flipped there a little bit. Oh, amazing. I love that so much. Well, let's talk a little bit about our themes here. Um, what was a theme that really kind of jumped out to you as you were rereading this book? So actually, when did you first read it? It was like high school or were you more middle school? I was one of those. One of those, <laughs> yeah, okay. Probably late yeah. middle school, early high school. Yeah. yeah I think probably eighth grade, um, which I think is a good age. Maybe a little earlier if you're doing like reading aloud, but I think seventh, eighth grade. What do you think? Oh, absolutely. I I would say, see, what's my youngest sibling is eight. I mean, I think he would enjoy these books. Um, I if if my mom did it as a read aloud or if they got it on audio. Actually, my siblings have probably listened to this already. I have to ask them. Um, <laughs> yeah. yeah, I would say it's 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 fine, especially if you do it as a read aloud. And then if you're not, yeah, probably like ten, eleven, twelve be great yeah that makes sense um it's one of those things that i think it can appeal to a lot of ages i remember i recommended it to my cousin when he was mm, i'm trying to think how old he is now and working backwards he was probably about 10 and i just remember he ended up kind of giving up because there were enough words he didn't really recognize Mm -hmm. and then he came back a couple years later and really enjoyed it yeah i think it just depends on the kid but yeah Yeah. if if they're younger when they when it's read out loud i think that's that'd be great too so Yep. Yeah, absolutely. And it's a fun one that I think everybody will enjoy. Mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. So one of the themes that I noticed uh, right from the get-go was this theme of teamwork and uh, embracing differences because there's four main characters, Rainy, Sticky, Kate, and Constance, and they all have very different personalities and skill sets. Um, and I noticed this right at the beginning, which this has always been one of my favorite parts of the book, is all the children take a test at the beginning. And Rainy doesn't know any of the answers, but he realizes that the test is a puzzle with the answers hidden in other questions. Um, Sticky, however, who he meets right afterward, actually does know most of the answers um, because he's just very smart and has a very good memory. And he had no idea that the test was a puzzle. So Rainy points out, rightly so, that they would make a good team. Um, And there's even a part of the test, the part that's not on paper, that involves helping a girl who's lost her pencil. So the children are even being tested for their good teamwork and kindness, and they all have a different way of helping this girl out, sharing a pencil, or Kate just lowers herself down into a grate to get it. And definitely this chapter where the kids are um, 
basically being tested for the Mysterious Benedict Society. There's so many examples of the importance of teamwork and also just embracing their differences. And you see that going forward too, because the children all have different ways of solving puzzles. So like I said, Sticky has an incredible memory and a lot of knowledge. Um, Kate is very clever, especially with her use of tools and her bucket and all these things that she keeps in it. Rainy is really good at solving puzzles. And Constance is this little girl that we find out at the very end is two years old. And she's extremely smart for a two-year-old. And her also her just general childish stubbornness ends up being vital in defeating this big machine, the Whisperer, and making the villain, Mr. Curtin, angry. And when he gets angry, that triggers his narcolepsy. So not just her intelligence, but just the fact that she's two years old ends up being really important. Which I love. Yeah, those tests are so important to kind of draw out what is really unique and individual. Like, yeah, the, them helping the one student get her pencil, it, you just see right there, each one of them has such a different way of going about and getting it, but it is exactly uh, them. That's what they would do to, to, help, yeah. with them, to help somebody get a pencil. Um, which yeah, I really which love. I love. And I, I love that. For Mr. Benedict, he's really all about finding what the kids are good at and what they're interested in and just pushing them to do a lot of that. (laughs) So it makes sense that that's what these tests are kind of trying to demonstrate. And I'll talk a little bit later about kind of his idea of education. But I think through the whole book, but especially in the tests, we see these kids are very different and they're encouraged to use their strengths in different ways. Um, which I think, getting, again, getting a little bit ahead into this idea of education is like sometimes on tests, just like the ones they're taking, there's kind of one right way to do it. And if you're a student who doesn't think that way, if you work too slow or you're working, you're better at working quickly or whatever, you can get left behind. But here it's very much that their different abilities are absolutely vital and what really make them a great team. Exactly. Exactly. And this is... Um, my sister actually pointed this out to me years ago when we both read read this book um, that all four of these children, um, they each have a distinct trait. But if you look at Mr. Benedict, the, the man who brings them all together and the, the uh, gives his name to their little society, um, Nicholas Benedict, he is – all of all of those things that the kids are are all in him. Like they are kind of like just – so, like, he has Sticky's memory. Um, he can remember all those things. But he also figures puzzles out as well as Rennie does. And he um, – I'm sure he has the constant stubbornness. And there are other <laughs> other abilities that she has that you find out about as you move on in the series. And um, Kate's resourcefulness and things like that. So it's just really interesting that they are all um, very similar to him but – as individual, like the kind of individual, uh, what's the word I'm looking for? Um, oh, um, I, I can't think of it right now, but yeah, just individual. I know what you mean. Yeah, they're individual abilities, but together they make a good unit. And it's interesting too, they talk about um, just the idea that, you know, Kate has lost her father, Rainy is an orphan, Sticky thinks that his parents don't want him anymore, and Constance, I think, is also. She's adopted by Mr. Benedict. So they all have, basically, they come to rely on Mr. Benedict and come to rely on each other like a family, which I think, yeah, the fact that I hadn't thought of that before, the fact that he has all these qualities that um, make the children so great, too, makes it it just seems even more natural for them to come together as a family with 
under his guidance. Exactly. Well, and, and on that that topic of family, um, is one of the themes that I I was kind of thinking about was, I don't, maybe this isn't the best way to describe it, but I I use the word understanding. These kids, they aren't perfect, so you don't get this sense of moralizing from the book. Just, they've got infighting, but they really try hard to work on these issues together. They just have this intense love of truth, which you come to see is very, very important. Um, and they work hard to understand problems, they, to understand the world around them, to understand each other. Um, and that is why... That's what makes them or helps one of the one of the reasons that they are such a good team is because they have this this they, or they are trying to understand so much. Um, they also are willing to challenge the others on their team when necessary. Um, you see this in the first book. You see it in the other other books as well. Um, and they actually care about other people. Um, and they particularly Rainy has a a way of reading people and, and understanding people, which is, is really neat. Um, and they, like, in this understanding, they're deeply loyal to each other and to Mr. Benedict, uh, which I just found um, a really neat. Um, and this part, I think, was what struck me uh, particularly, is that they're really self-sufficient in many ways because, I mean, it's a story about children. It's, it's this adventure story, so of course they're going to be self-sufficient. But where this book stands out to me is that these kids still need adults to an extent, and they have this really neat respect for authority. Um, I I don't want to draw too much because I know we, we don't really want to delve into the Harry Potter world on this on this podcast because <laughs> I it's just too tricky of a topic. There's there's a lot there to to unpack, um, so we won't go there. But I I did think about that book as I was reading or those books as I was reading this because there's definitely less respect for authority in in the Harry Potter books um, to an extent um, that I didn't see in here. Now, these, I mean, of course, these kids had to, in Mysterious Bank Society, had quite a lot that they had to, to work against at the Institute. Um, but they they really did respect their, the, well, not always their parents, but because um, some of them don't don't have them. But uh, I did think that was very interesting, uh, and that they needed Milligan for for some things. Like they just they couldn't do it completely um, on their own. They had to learn to trust other people, um, which I thought was really neat. Yeah, yeah, that is really interesting. I think one of the reasons you see so much in children's books is the kids are very much doing their own thing, going against the adults or or not relying on the adults. It's just because sometimes the story is just more interesting that way. And this mm-hmm. book, I think, is a rare one in that you it makes sense when the kids have to do things on their own. It makes sense when they're working with the adults. And it's not like the adults are um, just running over the children, right? Because mm-hmm. I feel like in some books – like in Harry Potter, I mean, yeah, it's not a great example for kids to like own the fact that it's only mostly the three kids working together and not relying <laughs> on adults. But if you had adults in that situation, the story would kind of just be over. Exactly. So it like, would be interesting. Good job of finding a balance. <laughs> yeah. Right. Yeah, exactly. Because you just have the adults that are like, oh, we know what to do. We'll fix this. And then yeah, it's a boring story. So this one does a good job of finding a way to get the kids in a good relationship with the adults. And the story's still interesting, and the kids still are running the show in a, in terms of the story. Yeah, which I, I, like. I was very I was very impressed by that. That that really struck me on my second read. 
Yeah, that's a great point. Um, oh, I was thinking too when you were talking before about just needing to be loyal to each other and showing grace for each other about the scene that I've always loved where um, before they go to the Institute, the kids are all um, together and Rainey comes to go talk to Mr. Benedict. And as soon as he walks into Mr. Benedict's office, Mr. Benedict says, ah, I imagine you're here, Constance, um, because all the kids are getting really annoyed by Constance, who's acting like a two-year-old, but they don't know that she's two and they're very impatient with her. And Mr. Benedict doesn't really explain why or anything more about her, just I need all of you. And that's kind of a theme later on is I need all of you. You are all vital to the success of this mission, but also like specifically Constance. Yes, she's difficult, but she's here for a reason. And that was something that all of them, but especially Rainey really struggled with. And so it's interesting to see him come to have more patience eventually with her and ultimately to see why, like I said, her childish obstinance is actually really good for them. Right. And the interesting fact uh, that I hadn't really thought of before until you just kind of said it now, Mr. Benedict did not tell him, oh, she's two years old. You should cut her some slack. Like he never, he didn't go there. And I think that's really important too. Yeah, I think so because it's kind of like, it, it's more dignifying for her because mm-hmm. she actually deserves her spot on this team. It's not just, oh, she's incredibly smart for a two-year-old. It's like, no, she's actually really smart. Yeah, and, and so it both gives them a chance to like, – she they need to include her on the team because she is really smart. Like She is a vital part of the team. But also that's a teaching moment for these kids. Like, How do you handle all types of people, especially when they're really annoying – um, and it's like they have to really work with her and and figure out ways of dealing with her, like her physical restrictions, like she can't walk as fast as they can, and her tiredness and her crankiness. So, yeah, really, really cool. Yeah, I love one thing I kind of forgot about before is just that she's constantly falling asleep in class. <laughs> yes. <laughs> like, yeah, because she's a baby. <laughs> exactly. Yeah, that was pretty funny. Yeah. Um, one thing I was thinking that I hinted at before a lot about was this sharp contrast between education and indoctrination. Mm. So the villain, Mr. Curtin, has all these secret messages that he's transporting around the world, and he transports them via television and radio and leads everyone to believe that there's this international emergency that's going on. Um, And he even will brain sweep people using the Whisperer, and he'll erase their memories when he needs to. So he's basically hypnotizing and just subversively getting his messages into everybody's brains. And that's his strategy for 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 taking over the world and and inciting this panic so that he can come in and fix it um is just pure indoctrination and this is a really sharp contrast to the way that Mr. Benedict prepares the children to come after him which is through education and through building up their skill sets as we talked about before but even just one thing I didn't quite put together is not only is Mr. Curtin just sending out these messages, but even at the school, at the Learning Institute for the Very Enlightened, as it's called, the tests are just pure memorization. There's no room for thinking. So um, Rainey and, and Sticky especially do really good on these tests, especially Sticky because he's just able to remember everything so he can just, you know, barf it back up. Um, but this is 
again, such a contract contrast to Mr. Benedict, um, because his idea of education really depends on the children's own abilities to reason. And you see that especially when you look at the tests that the children took at the beginning, even though, for instance, with the first test, Sticky did a great job with just using his memorization skills. Uh, Rainey didn't know any of that. And he was still able to figure it out because he was thinking about it logically and rationally and looking for patterns. And so that was just something that really struck me this time around was just every bit of this institution and every bit of Mr. Curtin's plan is indoctrination. And the way that they defeat that is with education. I, I love that. Yeah, that is so, so true. I mean, and you, you even see it in the, the rules when you get there, the, the contradictions that um, just kind of flood in with the kids are like, oh, so you're or the, the executives are, tell, are telling them. Um, what they can and can't do. They're like, you can do whatever you want here. You can ha- eat food whenever, as long as it's in these times. You can go to the gym whenever, as long as it's in these times. You can stay up as late as you, you want. You can talk at night, yeah. as long as you don't make any noise. <laughs> exactly. Like, you can have your TV on as late as you want, but only until 10 o'clock. Like, just stuff like that. But, yeah. It, Mr. Yeah, it's all very nonsensical. It is. It is. And and Mr. Benedict is all about cultivating the the individual and cultivating this just true love of of learning and understanding. And yeah, you don't get that at the Institute. It's very mindless. No, and even, right, and the people who are promoted are the people who are just best at following orders. And yeah, I mean, I think even just the fact that, like you said, mindless is a good word for it because he really does try to control people's minds and erase their memories. And yeah, yeah, I just thought that was a interesting. I just hadn't quite noticed before how even down to the way that the kids are educated in the classrooms and with these ridiculous logical statements, like um, I think the logical conclusion that was of one lecture was, you know, you can never be fully prepared for anything, which is why you have to try to be fully prepared for everything. And like all these things like that, that really don't make sense. Exactly. <laughs> it doesn't, it doesn't make sense at all. Oh my. Well, thank you. For, I I really like that you drew that out. I think that was really important to to see in this book. Aww. Um so my which is kind of the second theme. I I read this a while ago um on a, one of my favorite favorite bloggers, uh Lila Lawler. She um uh, is a mom um with I think seven kids and I just love what she writes and I was scrolling through some book reviews that she had done and this, it was this bit on Anne of Green Gables. And she, this, the one part that caught my eye was about orphans. And this book, The Mysterious Benedict Society, revolves a lot around orphans. So I wanted to read this little snippet from her blog um, where she was talking about why we have this kind of infatuation, particularly as kids, with orphans. I don't know if you did this, but I definitely played orphans as kids and like just in made-up games with my my siblings or my dolls were always orphaned or like and so just thinking back on that now, why? And she had a interesting little kind of snippet about this. And so this is what she said. Uh, first, a book about an orphan will always be pleasing to a child. With our adult way of looking at things, we get confused about archetypal meanings for children. Um, Bruno Bettelheim, who I don't know anything about. This is just me saying a side note here. I don't know anything about him. Um, She has a little disclaimer about him being controversial. I'm not sure why, but this is is what uh, she says. So anyway, continuing with Lila's thoughts. Um, Bruno Bettelheim explains why the really satisfying children's story must be about an orphan. 
even if it's the case of missing one or one missing parent, not two. Did you know that the word orphan encompasses this state as well? You see, a child is hardwired to love his parents, regardless of their frustrating behavior. The implications of this fact should give you hope, especially when you find his behavior frustrating. So, in order to help him come to terms with whatever injustices or shortcomings he finds in those who ought to love him, the good story offers the spinster lady who has the child thrust upon her, and who can blame her for objecting, or the stepmother who is downright cruel, and thus not an emotional threat if the child finds her unbearable. These categories have no relation to those in the real world. They simply represent the parent in a mode that can be dealt with, without jeopardizing the child's hold on what he must cling to, his real father and mother. That's really interesting. Yeah. I I definitely, like all my favorite books were about orphans, and I was aware of that, but I never, I didn't realize that was a normal thing. Mm -hmm. <laughs> I didn't realize that, yeah, that that was a... A part of it, I guess. Um, it reminds me of um, just the story of Cinderella. And I don't remember if we've talked about this before, because this is definitely a conversation that is sounding familiar to me. But in the the newer live action Cinderella, just her relationship with her stepmother. And mm -hmm. yeah, like you like the quote at the end, the stepmother who is downright cruel. That was just something interesting that was, I think, drawn out in that particular version of the story that um, there's not a, an emotional connection to an abusive parent if you're an orphan which yep. is interesting. Yeah, very, yeah. very interesting. Oh, <laughs> this is on the more humorous side. This also reminds me of a, of a Studio C sketch where um, one of their YouTube sketches where there's a character um, who's about to get killed off and he's like, wait, oh no, Disney will save me or something like that. And then Disney walks in and he's like, oh yes. And then he, he runs through this giant list of basically every single Disney character and mm -hmm. every single one of them was an orphan. Yeah, yeah. And you're like... I remember like uh... trying to think of a movie one time where they have both the mom and the dad. And I think Peter Pan was one of the only ones we could come up with. Yeah. <laughs> there's, been, there's more sense then. But yeah, there's not very many, which makes a lot of sense. Yeah, it does. I just... I, that, I mean, the sketch itself is hysterical. But yeah, it just eh, draws another, another point to this. So definitely something to uh, reflect on as... As we uh, read more children's literature and think back on our own on our own favorites, so yeah, that's, yeah, that's all I have there. But uh, thanks to Lila Lawler for having those great thoughts on that. Yeah, those are great thoughts. Was there anything else that you want to talk about before we move on to the uh, recommendations? Uh, no, no, I'm good. I could go on and on about this book, but uh, for the <laughs> out of uh, respect for our listeners' time, I will I will stop. Oh, uh, actually, oh, one quick sense. thing Maybe I will say. Maybe someday we'll go back and do the next book. We should because oh, yeah, yeah. I just reread the next book because as I was telling you before we started recording, I, I read the first one and I was like, oh my gosh, I forgot how much I love these. So I got the second one and <laughs> loved it. It was great. And then I was able to uh, uh, configure things so that I am listening to the newest one that just came out. So I'm reserving judgment until I'm finished with it, but it's, uh, it's proving interesting. So. Okay. You'll have to tell us what you think when you're done. I will. I will. Next time we record, I should be done and I will, I will key you in. So what are our recommendations this week, Chandler? Well, the album that I recommend listening to while you're reading this book, or in my case, while I'm prepping for this podcast, is Codes and Keys by the band Death Cab for Cutie. And 
it was really just the name as soon as I saw it. I mean, it's a it's a good album and I'll get into more of why the lyrics are appropriate, but just codes and keys are such a big part of the book. And the most fun part of the book is all the puzzles that they solve and interpreting the Morse code riddles and finding their way through rooms in the dark and all these things. Um, and as funny as I was trying to think of one, I was telling my husband about it and he hadn't read the book. So I'm describing it to him. And then I just pull up this album and show him my computer screen. And right away he's like, oh yeah, this is perfect. <laughs> I think it's a good one. Um, so one song, the title song, Codes and Keys, part of it goes, we won't get far flying in circles inside a jar because the air we breathe is thinning with the words that we speak. You're on the floor, fearful of what's outside your door, but the codes and keys, they can protect you from the pangs of jealousy. Um, and I think that speaks to just the idea of, in this case, I don't think this is necessarily the song's about, but in, in the in the context of the books, just relying on these codes and keys like i said with the morse code in that case they really are relying on the codes and keys to protect them and they're using those for advice from mr benedict and his associates um and just this idea of being fearful of the unknown and then this other song doors unlocked and opened which i think also um goes well with uh, the perilous journey but part of it goes somewhere down 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 in the ocean of sound sound will live in slow motion and be free with doors unlocked and opened and going back again to the idea of the indoctrination and the fact that they need to get freed to that. It reminds me. And then of course the ocean because the perilous journey is on a boat. Um, but again, just having to unlock these doors, unlock these keys in order to find freedom, I think is fitting. Very. I, I like that a lot. Very, very fitting. Thank you. What recipe do you have for us? Well, so I was struggling this time around. I wanted to do something with apples for some reason, but I've already done stuff with apples. So I set that idea aside. Um, there's not much, there's not tons of talk of food um, or of anything terribly elaborate in this in this book. Um, the one the one food that does stick out to me is like the cream puffs. And like, there is tons and tons of food at the Institute. But I didn't want to go into any of that because of that one chapter where they have to make everybody sick. Um, mm. so food is a difficult with, with this one, but I w was reflecting on the final chapter of that book where the, the kids are all outside and they've got, um, everybody, like the adults are inside, um, making, like prepping dinner and they're about to call them all in. And it just, it's a very warm scene and a very cozy scene and it's, it's a winter. So I was thinking like these warm foods, um, this past week, I just made sloppy joes for myself. It's one of my favorite recipes. Um, Ooh. yeah, it's ground meat with like a sort of barbecue sauce on it and onions and peppers sauteed in. It's so good. Um, it's yeah, very, that very is good. really good. Yeah. So something like that. And it's a classic like school lunch meal too, yep. but also if you make it at home, it's really good. So that works. So, <laughs> so good at home. And then or that or a really warm beef stew. They, they just kind of evoke this. Um, sense of coziness and and uh, family sitting around a table, just all enjoying a meal together, and that's what these kids kind of are searching for in another way throughout the book. We didn't touch it. We didn't really talk about that. We talked about like the the theme of orphans. We didn't talk about them kind of searching for their place in the world and they're searching for family. Um, and that's what they come to in the end of the book, which I think is really neat and so that was that's why I kind of picked these recipes that make me think of home and family and just all gathering together to eat them kind of in one it's it's in one kind of large dish and then you then you all share out of that so those are the recipes that yeah. I recommend 
That totally works. Those are very homey and comforting kind of recipes. Yes, yes. And then hot chocolate too, but you know. Of course. Great suggestion. (laughs) Yeah. Oh, I'm excited. (laughs) Not that like I keep wanting to buy sweaters and remembering like, oh, I don't live in Michigan anymore. Uh, (laughs) We don't wear sweaters in Southern California, but (laughs) I'll still find a way to drink some hot chocolate. (laughs) Yes. Do it. Do it. Do it. Or some warm, warm cider. But well, I think that's all for us. Um, Oh, what are are we going to read next for next time? Yeah, next time we are going to be reading Beverly Cleary's Ramona the Pest, which I'm excited about. It's been a long time. I think I've only read that one once as a kid. I don't even remember if I read it a second time. So I'm excited about that because it's a great one and it's so funny. And yeah, it's going to be fun. I am really looking forward to this and I love Beverly Cleary. So that'll be wonderful. Well, thank you so much, Chandler. Thank you, Sarah. And thank you to our listeners and to D and Key for our intro and outro music. And we will see you all next time.